That's the old catchphrase. You still hear people saying it, don't you? Sometimes they'll call it out just after they've seen something scary, like a Facebook post about a snake in a toilet. Or sometimes you'll hear it at a happy time, like when you realize you're not pregnant. Well, however you use it, whenever you say it, I hope that if you're somewhere near a pharmacy or a restroom or a herpetologist, when you hear those words, you'll think of me. Hello, I'm Dale Seaver, your host through the deep night, the 4 a.m. hour of regrets and revelations and rewards for the curious among you. You've tuned in to another episode of Dale Radio, coming to you, as always, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. And here we are, folks, almost all the way through another fantastic season of this show. And in New York, it's suddenly warm. We had winter, sort of, then spring, little bit of spring, little bit of spring, then winter again, and now summer! Sometimes nature uses all caps, and we have to be okay with it. I do feel a little responsible for the warm temperatures and extreme weather I do, what with all the hairspray that I used in the 80s. I had a lot of hair, and it was very high. So at my house, we kind of had a chlorofloral carbon party every night of the week. You almost couldn't breathe when you came into our little home. Between Ginny and myself, I bet we made 50% of that ozone hole. Was it worth it? Well, sometimes we had crowds of almost 15 people shoved into the back room of an Italian social club in Ojai. So you tell me. Don't ask the polar bears. The actual bears, which are notoriously bad at giving straight answers. But also, don't ask that weird club of people who jump in the water when it's real cold out. Now, that's okay if you're at a nudist resort and there's a a real hot tub, uh, you know, followed by a cold plunge. But please refrain from getting us all down to the beach at Coney Island early in the morning to watch you jump in uh, wearing a winter hat and an Iron Man bathing suit. We get it. You're unusual. Friends, today we do one of those episodes that we sometimes do, where we just go full bore into a specific uh, topic, in this case, the intricacies of comedy. My guest today is a comedy booker and anthropologist, Luisa Diaz. Luisa and I have walked on some of the same trails on this hike called Life, and I was eager to hear her thoughts as someone who is both inside and outside uh, the art world and the comedy world. As it turns out, she's uh, given it a lot of brain space herself, and she shares some of her astute observations with me in our talk. We also talk about some of the strange crossover mo- You hear that? It's a siren. That's what it is in New York, okay? New York, every, everything, there's probably somebody probably getting some insurance money. That That's usually what that is. What was I saying about Louisa? There's maybe some strange crossover moments, probably, between art and comedy and the way to see jokes through the lens of creative expression. Well, if you're a comedian or one who enjoys comedy, and if you're not, get out. Just stop now. 
Maybe you thought this was Radio Dale, the Spanish-speaking radio station that brings me so many of my Latino listeners. Buenos dias, amigos. But no, this is a comedy-centric podcast from an older fella sitting in his basement, peeking out into a Superfund site, praying that the Zika virus-carrying mosquitoes never use the Gowanus as a means to mutate and become raccoon-sized predators with deadly proboscises full of big head-making venom. I sleep in a net, ladies and gentlemen. If you're here like an ideal Bachelorette contestant for all the right reasons, then you are going to gain some definite wisdom on pursuing comedy and the ways in which festivals work. Directly from someone who books the shows and curates talent and has seen the inside of the beast, that is, uh, the Just for Laughs Festival. It's rare that we offer practical information on this program, so I urge you to listen all the way through this, my conversation with comedy professional and delightful individual, Luisa Diaz. Luisa Diaz, how are you? I'm well, Dale. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing okay. Thank you so much for coming down uh, here uh, to our little studio here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, you're the first comedy booker to Ooh. appear on these hallowed pod waves. Now, maybe everybody knows, but uh, forgive me for being basic, but what does a comedy booker do? Oh, sure. Um, a comedy booker is basically a talent coordinator, right, would be a more common term, I think. Um, the difference is that a talent coordinator is mostly somebody who, under somebody else's guidance, coordinates the time and place for performances and performers to appear. A booker goes a little bit farther because they have to bring in their own knowledge and taste and connections to that talent that they're booking and that they're arranging together. Um, but basically, it just means I either run my own shows or I work for venues yeah. and I book comedians for different types of comedy shows. Uh, would you resist the title of curator? Uh, you know, this is actually, it's, it's funny that you ask that because... Um, in the last few years, especially from the L.A. side of the world, <laughs> you mm. hear the term cur comedy curator thrown yes. around a lot. And as somebody who also works in museums, it's a little bit irksome, you know, because I'm like, wait, technically I should be calling myself a comedy curator. Yeah. But it does seem a little pompous, so I just kind of stick with the industry lingo as it is. Well, it's also <laughs> a little bit, I think... Um, uh, oversaturated or ubiquitous yeah. or just overused maybe is the right word because you got people that work at J. Crew that are curators. Exactly, you know, yes. Another thing against the fine people of J. Crew. Definitely. We appreciate the work that they do. But <laughs> uh, it's it kind of gotten everywhere where you can be a yeah. curator if you're just arranging things in your home and that's yeah. not, not really what it is. Exactly. A lot of curatorial programs that would have an issue. Yes, definitely. But to me, there is a curating, that curatorship, curating that happens because it's your, it's, it is curating. Let, let's let's call it what it is. Yeah. It is that because you're relying on your relationships, your tastes, your unique point of view to yeah. bring the bring these folks together. Absolutely. And I would go even one further and say, um, 
the a key component of curating comedy is that it's not entirely about your taste. Being good at curating something is understanding the audience that you're curating for. Sure. The type of show that maybe whoever hired you, whether it's the venue or another, a comedian who's running a particular kind of show. Um, so it's really about just having uh, that wide knowledge that will allow you to pick from there people that will fit well into this show, who are available, who live on this side of the country, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So now you have to go and see stuff to be able to know what people are yes, good at. Absolutely. Most of my time is watching comedy. <laughs> All the time. <laughs> well, uh, I know the answer, but you find it challenging? To watch it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it can be. Um, I really enjoy watching it. I love watching it live. I do think that um, stand-up is not served well through video or TV, unfortunately. No. Um, so unlike most bookers and most industry people, I do try to see people live as much as possible. I don't, so I hate watching video is what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> um, so, you know, when I work for festivals and stuff like that, I have to watch like hundreds of clips in a short period. Right. That's so that can be a little self-mutilating. <laughs> <laughs> that can get you down, can it? Yeah. Um, but you're fortunate to live here where everybody is or is coming through. Definitely. And uh, you have some uh, favorite venues to go and see? I mean, Yeah. Um, well, it just really depends so much. I, I always tell people you have to like be more specific with your question. Well, let me be more specific <laughs> oh, sure. with my question. Where do you find is a place that doesn't ever make the list of the great places to go, and maybe they only have a couple of people in the audience, but that are consistent in cranking out really kind of experimental or forward-thinking comedy that's not, sure. maybe it's not stand-up club, Sure. But it's something uh, maybe a little bit off. Um, well, I think the Creek in the Cave is really special. You know, I do. Kn I know that they do get mentioned as best of yeah, things sure. quite often. Um, though I think that it's often in the sense of like, oh, it's not quite a club and it's not quite a bar show, that kind of thing. So they, the Creek o occupies this like very special space that, you know, the owner there gives comics a really... Um, open door to be experimental to try different ideas so not only do they have comedy every single night but they have shows that are like um they have one that's you know all the comics smoke weed before the show and then you have to watch what happens with that they have some that are you know part panel discussions and some that are part acted scenes out of tv and movies um i want to say like battling and one that's about um comics who are couples who date each other and then they go up and do jokes about each other and yeah. about what it's like to date another comedian so you just get to see more than just their um standard set that they will do at a regular comedy club you get right. to see a little more of what they can do and uh, is, because you're out there uh, how many nights four nights five nights six nights yeah um well at the creek i would say I would not, go, not there specifically, oh no but, but out watching seeing, comedy yeah. yeah i would say three to four or five nights um recently i got really really busy and so i got away from going out as much mm -hmm. which made me very sad but now i'm returning yeah good <laughs> yes. good uh, uh but that becomes your social circle yeah Exactly. So um, more so than the museum, folks. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, uh, that can be troublesome. <laughs> it can be troublesome because you know, you if you have friends who um, they want to be booked, they want spots, they want right. um, feedback, they want recommendations, and that kind of thing. And you have to weigh carefully your friendship over wherever this person's skill level is at. You know what they're ready or not ready for. So it can be tricky. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, do you give that, though? you give advice to people? Yeah, I do. Um, 
mostly to people who know me well enough to like ask me in person you know um it takes me a really long time to get to those like cold emails that are just like I've never met you but somebody gave me your email um so what I'll do often if I get the same question a lot from comics I don't know I'll go on Twitter and publicly just be like here's what you should know about this process right <laughs> right well w- maybe we'll talk a little bit about that because sure. I, I did read uh, some, through some of those sure. uh, when those were happening Okay. But I wanted it because I think that this happened recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were booking where? Um, or are booking Most where? recently, uh, I was running, booking two shows at the Knitting Factory, two week- weekly shows. And I was also working as like their overall comedy um, booker. So any, you know, one-off shows that were coming through, just basically managing the ca- the comedy calendar at that venue which is a rock venue so you know it's kind of special and different and um i did a brief stint at stand up new york which is a club like a 30 year old club on the upper west side um and then i just do random one-off shows and i work for festivals and did something close last night did you have the final something oh yeah last night was um the final front room at the knitting factory which was a wednesday show um it after about a year and a half, we just decided to close that one up. We've got a lot going on. Um, so we had a big bash yesterday, and that was the last show. Ah, okay. Yeah. And it went well? It went really well, yes. Good. Mm-hmm. Good. Uh, I, that, I've been in that front room, I think. Yeah. It's the main space there uh-huh. when you go in. Uh, it seemed like it could be a tough Can. space. Mm-hmm. For comedy, a lot of street yeah. uh, windows to the street and the bar in the back. Constant sirens yeah. uh, from the police. Constant <laughs> sirens. Uh, you can hear the restaurant on one side, and you can hear the rock in, in the <laughs> right. venue in the oh, back. While that's happening. Yeah, and then you uh-huh. have plenty of drunk people coming from the concert and like walking in surprised to see a comedy show and interrupting everything. So you know, it keeps comics on their toes, but it's fun, free, yeah. free one. <laughs> but it works. Yeah. <laughs> And then, of course, you have a full-time job in the arts. Yes, I do. At this sleepy little institution known as the Guggenheim. Correct. Uh, at their flagship. Indeed. Yes, at center. the New York. The mm-hmm. New York location. The Knitting Factory, by the way, in Brooklyn. Yes. Do yeah. um, you ever take a big wheel down the ramp there? No. Uh, dying to do the roller skating down the ramp. They did have one time an art after dark event where yeah. it was like allowed, you know. Those are but fun. But it was before my time and I will forever regret missing it. <laughs> Maybe someday uh, what I'd like to do, mm-hmm. just walk down with like pockets full of bouncy balls. Oh gosh, just drop them. Just, just drop them. So fun. Yeah. That'd be pretty good. Yeah. I mean, those are fun ramps. <laughs> <laughs> Well said. Well, in some ways, we've had a very similar uh, path, so I want to talk about some of those instances of sure. connection. Uh, you're first and foremost an anthropologist? Yes, sir. Yeah. And uh, as such, you've probably been keenly interested. Not only are you putting these people together for their mm-hmm. great talents, but then you're also, I assume, observing what's going on. Yes. So maybe if you could offer uh, some observations about the comedy and the art world. Sure. Um, let's see. Well, you know, I did come to comedy as a fan foremost, but yes. then as an anthropologist, you know, I think most people who have any kind of social science background will agree that your lens is forever that lens, you know, so I observe comedy through the anthropological lens. Uh, I can't stop. It's not even <laughs> something that I am <laughs> doing on purpose. Um, but before I was a booker or got involved in any way, I was really interested in, might be something that I'll still do one day, in writing an ethnography of New York comedy. Yeah. 
um, which would be for those non-anthropologists out there. Um, and ethnography is a book that is basically a manual or a guide, you could say, that's all about a cultural group and defines their practices, their rituals, their beliefs, their movements or migration, right? Um, their kinship patterns, all of that kind of stuff. And um, I keep a, a pretty close eye on New York and about seven or eight other cities in the country. So That's a lot. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's really gross. Seven or sick. eight other cities. You're not just yeah. doing Newark and uh, no, New York. No, no, no. New York definitely... into itself would be enough. Exactly. Well, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see the... Um, Migration patterns, so that's one, right? So I, I could talk about every single one of those examples of what an ethnography does, <laughs> but let's go with migration patterns um, because that's a very interesting one um, because one of the things that is pretty obvious is that um, the main scenes, comedy scenes in the United States are Los Angeles and New York. Yeah. Um, you know, and very generally speaking, we can say that LA is more of the kind of place that is for comedians that have talents ranging further than stand-up and interests that are more about performing in other ways, of becoming actors, of doing talking head shows, of doing, you know, more of these other periphery comedy things. Mm -hmm. uh, no offense to anyone, but as a stand-up fan, I'm like, all that other stuff is the periphery. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in New York, I would say that you have, in general, um, kind of the other end of that spectrum, which is more comics who are interested in the craft of a joke and in like the perfect punchline and really in just being very good at stand-up. Um, and New York has an environment where it's just like very tightly packed shows and venues and a lot of opportunities for comics to get up, whereas in LA and in any other city, you know, things are more spread out. It's more difficult to do more than one set in a night. Um, so it, they just create different types of comedians, I would say. And then the rest of the country <laughs> has, you know, um, some pretty good, pretty nice burgeoning scenes out there. Um, Denver is great. Chicago has a lot of great people coming out of there all the time. I think Atlanta is popping, as the kids say. Yeah, I've heard them say that. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, and so if you start to watch those patterns of how the comics move from one place to the other, it's really interesting because you can start to mark um, kind of the progress in their careers and you can see um, the difference between, let's say, a comic who comes up in New York and a comic who came up in Arizona or whatever and then moves to New York. The one that lives in New York and started in New York has the problem that he or she is having to develop in the one place and they're being seen from the beginning and they're being seen bombing or not doing well. Uh, for a long time and then they have to kind of work against that expectation of the, pr the previous exhibition of their skills um, for the rest of the time for like the next five to ten years <laughs> you oh, understand yes. me yes I do um, and those guys that are uh, coming from other places they already did four to six to seven years where they made all their mistakes and they made all their hacky jokes and they learned quietly in the darkness where nobody <laughs> saw them <laughs> and then they move here and now they're at a higher skill level. I they see. exhibit more of an ability than uh, comics who um, have started here, which doesn't mean that they're better, but you know, it just gets held against them that I've seen you since you were not good at this. <laughs> well, when you say they, when they came in, they're, they're being seen at a higher level. Exactly. It's not that they're yes. necessarily it's, at a higher level, but exactly. they, they just don't have the added weight of the... Exactly. And then it has weird, um, weird effects like... Um, you know, a lot of people think you have to move to New York or L.A. to make it. 
But there's several examples of people that haven't moved who are making it. And I think a big part of that is the migrations that they've chosen to take, which is like, um, instead of taking that more traditional pattern of coming up in your home city and then moving to one of the two coasts and then moving to the other coast <laughs> when you feel like you did everything you could at that first coast, um, there are some who are now succeeding by staying in their hometown, building a scene there, building a reputation there, and then traveling to one of the two coasts very often so that um, when they're here, a lot of bookers will want to take the ch take the opportunity to book people who don't live here, so they'll tend to get spots right. more quickly than people who live here because bookers will think to themselves, "Well, oh, I could book you next week; it's fine." But this guy leaves on Saturday, right. <laughs> you right. know. Right. So you start to see these patterns, and you know um, that comic, those comics who do that, like visiting the coast city. What ends up happening for them is that they are also not being seen failing. They come in and they only do their A material, which is what they call like their best material, mm -hmm. right? And um, everybody sees them doing well and doing well in all the best shows, and then they disappear again, and then they come back and do it again in six months. So then to industry and people who are not out watching those comics that are doing like the daily grind in the city, that it, it just is, it pops out for them more than this other person who's at Mike's every single day. Because they might have also, as an industry person, might mm -hmm. have also made a note that this person is coming through. Exactly. They heard good things. I got to go see Here's them. the one chance to yeah. see them. And so they will actually see them where exactly. you might yeah. neglect the people that have been. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. No, that's, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of this. I wanted to back up just a second to, 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 Maybe this is too generalized, sure. but within New York and L.A. specifically, mm -hmm. does anything, does it have to do with the the actual history of the place and the geography of the place as well in that? Uh, when I think of New York, I think of um, old families. I sure. think of, you know, the, the, the boulevards and avenues being mm -hmm. carved there for forever. You walk yeah. down here, there's a very old building. It's sure. been there. Those bricks are there. It's mm -hmm. solid. Uh, the The... All the uh, uh, pathways are very well worn. Sure. It's established. Everybody does their thing, as you were saying, kind of packed in. And California, L.A. Mm -hmm. specifically is a place where you go to remake, dump all that yeah. stuff mm -hmm. and be whatever you want to be. And sure. maybe you could be this one day and yeah. be this you talk show host one day, but uh, yeah. something else another day. Does that hold true? I mean, I think of my experience in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. Another place where you kind of reinvent it and really toss it all sure. out. And that's like even you can be even wilder there. Mm -hmm. And the audiences love a pause. Sure. They will give you the biggest laugh mm -hmm. for a pause <laughs> that you couldn't get away with here. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful if mm -hmm. you're into that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But you have to adjust. If I go out to do Sketchfest. And I've seen other people do it. Mm -hmm. Pete Holmes, Phoebe Robinson. I've seen them lit like the light goes on that they can yeah. take more time with the pause. And it's a beautiful thing. That's great. Yeah. But is there something to that in those two, in, in two you know, places? Um, I hadn't really thought of it so much as it, of, as it being about the places. I thought it was really more of people self-selecting, a particular type of person self-selecting, and then that has created an environment where those type of people just keep self-selecting <laughs> to go to those places, if that makes sense. Yes. And what I mean by that is that, um, and you know, this is very general, and that's uh, one of the problems with anthropology is that you're always making generalizations y about yes. large groups. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, this is me admitting it, and therefore caveat. Um, so, um, 
I would actually say that it's more that, you know, New York, the people who choose to come to New York are people who, um, like I said earlier, their interest is more directed towards the craft of stand-up comedy and being good at that craft. So there's the idea of like the history of New York comedy and all the people that you'll have access to, the legends that you'll be able to see, that you'll be able to perform next to. I think that's one thing. Yep. Um, it's also people who already have a mindset of uh, work ethic, of being like almost self-punishing um, workaholics who are like, no, the only way to get things is to work really hard and kill yourself and, you know, that kind of thing. I think... And here you're forced to do that. Yeah, you're Just, forced to do that. There's a survival element to this. Yeah, and I think that a lot of us chose that. Like, you know, even if it's subconscious, we chose... I'm, I'm a workaholic. I keep taking jobs. <laughs> like, I can't stop. So, um, you know, that's one aspect. Whereas in LA, for LA, I think... Oh, and then that's what gets respected and valued in New York. So that just keeps encouraging more of that. And those are the people that become successful here and that. And in L.A., the self-selection process, I think, you know, as as not a performer, is that, um, first of all, the, the it's going to sound mean, but it's I would say that the primary goal is not necessarily craft. It's more to be successful at the business of comedy. And the reality is that L.A. has more real paying jobs for comedians than New York does. Right, sure. You know, they can work on TV shows. They can do talking head shows. They can do web series, all kinds of... I mean, I didn't know they can do that everywhere, but, you know, Hollywood is more conducive to that. Um, yes. So in a, in a very real sense, it's um, a choice of, you know, I want to be famous and I want to make a living off of comedy as quickly as possible. And it doesn't necessarily have to be stand-up. It could be writing or it could be hosting or it could be doing something else um but you won't see road guys like road comics you know that make their living working clubs throughout the country yes they won't really settle in la they'll more likely settle in new york um well you can do four open mics in a night exactly you yeah. can't do that exactly exactly so i think it just becomes self-selecting and that in those migration patterns you start to notice in particular comics, um, their own evolution of their voice and their career, you can almost see when they realize, not that they made the wrong choice, but maybe that it's time to go try the other thing, whether it's because I already did 12 years in New York and I'm good at stand-up and I don't feel like there are any more opportunities here, but I might get a paying job in L.A., or whether it's L.A. and I already did some stuff and I have some credits, but now I would like to go prove myself as a stand-up, so I'll move to New York. You understand right. me? So, you know, I, I do see, you know, it's interesting. I'm going to think about that, the cities and how it impacts them, you know. Um, Having lived in both places, it, there is a definite difference. Sure. Yeah. And it is something that is uh, deeply embedded within the actual physical environment Absolutely. and the, the history of people moving there. Yeah. Even San Francisco going there to always seek fortune and mm -hmm. how that completely yeah. uh, creates upheaval in the entire social Absolutely. structure there. Sometimes completely burning the city to the yeah. ground but you know sometimes that's natural mm -hmm. but is it I don't know. we don't know <laughs> um well uh and then if you would uh, if you had to describe a curatorial eye that you put towards comedy what are the things that you are drawn to i know you said it's just different when which room and yeah. what the evening is going to be but mm. uh, have you found that there's really can you identify something that you are constantly coming back to Hmm. So I would say not really ever a particular person, you know, because um, 
I see comedy very much as like an, an ever changing thing. Mm -hmm. So, um, somebody that might have been my favorite five years ago is not necessarily going to be my favorite later. Yeah. You know, is there um, a style or something that, you're yeah, I don't, for? I don't think it's a style. I do have, um, certain styles that are not my favorites, <laughs> but yeah. I feel like I can characters. Uh, no, no, no <laughs> characters. I, I like, uh, musical comedy sometimes can yeah. be not my favorite. Sure. Um, but, that said, I do feel like I can recognize what makes a good musical comedian, which is really, really simple, is actually being good at both a comedian and a musician's role. That's right. Um, but that's not always the case. That's a key. Yeah. So I would say the thing that draws me the most is really a unique point of view. And that doesn't necessarily mean, oh, you, that it has to be people that are just weird and had a weird background and that's the only way like, <laughs> you could ever be funny. It's not that, but it's a matter of um, through your jokes and through your comedy and the way you present yourself, do I see that there is a real person putting in thoughts into what they're saying and considering how their point of view adds to the discussion um, and really just work ethic, <laughs> which sounds so, you know, obviously I'm one of those New York people. Um, and so to <laughs> right. me, jokes are like, you know, they don't stand, they don't stay still. And, you know, the, I have found that the best comics are the ones who do great on stage. And then as soon as they get off, the first thing they say is, man, I messed up that one line. You know, or just like, God, that one joke, that new joke in the middle didn't work. And they're so hard on themselves. And you see, you know, I see comedy a lot. So something that is very valuable to me is that when I see you very often, am I seeing that you are thinking, that you are adding, that you are constantly adding to your work and um, writing new jokes and new material? Um, writing one good set that you do for 10 years or five years I mean, it's great. That's great. That's a great set. And honestly, there's a lot of very famous comedians who do that and have done that. Um, but it might just be the curse of I see too much comedy to be satisfied with that and to think it's almost like if you painted one painting and then went on tour Done. all over the world showing your one yeah. painting, you know? Um yeah, so I just have to say the the surprise of like, wow, I, n I never heard you talk about this subject or I never thought of this that way or like... Just, you know, the surprise of I didn't think I would think that would be funny, but you said it and it was funny. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a curious alchemy that happens up exactly. there. Exactly. But um, well, that's good, and you know, we'll. I know I gave you a big question of mm -hmm. uh, what are some observations about comedy in the art world, but let's come back to the art world sure. in, in a little bit. Um, you grew up mostly in Miami. Yes. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and also Medellin. Medellin, yes. Medellin, <laughs> uh, the proper way to say it, in Colombia. Mm -hmm. And I know from listening to your conversation with Ari Shafir yes. that um, uh, on his podcast, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, your family, specifically your father, mm -hmm. held a, a position within the Escobar Correct. Uh, organization. What would you call it? Yes. Um, I mean, you know, they didn't have real titles, but <laughs> right. he was just one of the first original guys that started the whole thing, you know, uh, in from the ground floor. Yeah. In from the ground uh -huh. floor. Exactly. And, uh, that, uh, I, it must've been unusual for you. Yeah. Yeah, it was. But, um, in a weird way, it is directly related to how I found comedy, I would say. And how's that? 
Well, because um, so I lived in a lot of different places, mainly Medellin, but a lot of different other countries also. And um, I learned a little bit of English growing up because I went to American schools and English speaking schools. But then um, after my dad died, when I was like 11, um, we moved to the United States because my brother and I are American. And, um, you know, I, I was new. I didn't have friends. And I would, like, stay up late to watch this strange TV at this la- in this <laughs> land. <laughs> and um, I don't know. I mean, we're about similar ages. So you remember back when we didn't have 100 channels and there was just, like, three channels? Yes, I do, very clearly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then they would used to do, at least in Florida, that they would – after midnight, they would just play stand-up specials, like three or four of them back to back, and then the um, Pledge of Allegiance or whatever at the end, or the national anthem, and then <laughs> static for the rest of the night. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So I was this kid that couldn't sleep, and I would just stay up all night watching stand-up specials, and I would watch just like Red Fox and Rodney Dangerfield and Eddie Murphy and Amazing Jonathan, just like complete whatever was on, whichever one was on, um, and I was just fascinated by. The fact that these men, mostly, uh, there's Paula Pans- Poundstone in oh, there. Poundstone. Yeah, there's some. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Let's oh, give her Lord. her due. And Kitelinger. How could I forget? I loved her so oh, much. Oh, yeah, you sure. Remember Kitelinger? Yeah, I sure. love her. Um, so, you know, because of the life that I came out of and because my dad died and we moved to U.S. and I didn't speak English and I was forced to just watch that all night, um, I just fell in love with it. It was so amazing to me to see these people whose job was just to stand there and make people happy and to bring laughter and especially when it was like subjects that I had never even heard people talk about in public you know much less like make fun of them you know um so it was just amazing and I pretty much since I was 11 watched stand-up all the time whenever I could I saw Carlin when I was 17 wow yeah I was like really into it it was it was weird especially because you know um I think the majority of people's interests tend to come from the people around them you know mm-hmm. like they'll like the music that their older brother liked or they will like the types of movies that their dad always took them to or their ex-boyfriend or whatever it may be um and i would say that stand-up is the only thing that i found by myself that just came to me like a gift <laughs> and then i just pursued always and not at all in an interest with performing um i didn't want to be them i just wanted to see them and right. to know them <laughs> yeah you found a little joy center yeah that's amazing. I love hearing about late night influence. Oh, really? <laughs> I really do because I was a bit of a, and still am, mm-hmm. uh, a night owl. Yeah. And I loved watching that stuff. Uh, uh, night Flight. My favorite. I can't yeah. get enough of that show. Mm-hmm. I wish it was still around. Yeah. I'd like to do it myself and, mm-hmm. and just to take it on as a project. But I was exposed to animation from all over the world, oh, yeah. things you'd never see anyways. Some things that are in museums now. Yeah. Um, uh, Stand up was mm-hmm. a constant presence on those things, I yeah. guess, because it was probably cheap. And then yeah. they'd have like uh, Japanese uh, Power Ranger kind yep. of things in there that were just bizarre. Absolutely. But it was, and music videos. Mm-hmm. Because at that point, I didn't and have. Infomercials. Yeah, and infomercials. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could only take some of those for so yeah. long. <laughs> but I guess if you're learning English, if that's you're a good You're a foreigner, way. you're like, wow, interesting. <laughs> An hour long commercial. Gosh. I will watch this. <laughs> I wonder what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Will it really cut as yeah. fast as they say? I was going to go with a knife example also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we watch the same thing. Yeah. And then I was also, of course, drawn to mm-hmm. Carson. And oh. that was just such a. Uh, the world of late night television mm-hmm. talk shows was uh, kind of a secret 
society. Yeah. When you weren't supposed to stay up that mm-hmm. late, but you did. And yeah. that was like, wow. See, for me, it was Letterman was my first one because uh, I think Carson was already off the air when I moved to the United States. But then uh, when I was in school, well, in grad school, um, a lot of my studies in anthropology are focused around modern American culture. And um, I took a lot of media studies courses and chose even then to focus it around comedy. (laughs) So, you know, I, I... wrote a lot about like Flip Wilson and I went back and I watched a lot of this Carson and I, you know, um, in the sense of it was interesting to me, not just to consume current modern comedy, but to see where it came from and the steps that it's taken and like, um, you know, how a Flip Wilson has something to do with Chappelle leaving his show and how, uh, you know, those, those things. Um, and then especially, when we consider American culture such a huge part of um, defining your sense of self, of your personal and national identity, is influenced by media so much that um, even when most people can't really name more than five comedians, they still have the jokes that they wrote in their head. They still quote those movies. They still, you know, um, just pick up ways of seeing the world through all these pervasive comedic voices that are really often unacknowledged and unknown but they are just everywhere they write you know for award shows they do news segments they do pretty much everything right yeah. right yeah no it's a, and it, I've, increasingly mm-hmm. it's been recognized as yep. a, a powerful tool to get through maybe Absolutely. that's always been the case i don't know but mm-hmm. um you watch like that lincoln movie and it seemed like he was a pretty funny guy I know. <laughs> <laughs> like he landed a couple good ones yeah <laughs> well, look at our current president is getting uh, so many kudos for having even a slight sense of humor. <laughs> yes. It's being yeah. valued as not just a um, a, cl- a class clown type of thing that needs to be silenced and kept in its proper space. It's being let out. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's actually funny. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. he's got the best people working for him. Absolutely. And he's being compared to what was a block of wood. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> I mean, geez. But uh, no, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and I think people can, if people are interested in the whole Escobar piece, I would just say go listen to to that podcast. Yeah, it's a long one. It's a long one. And and emotional and personal, so apologies ahead of time. (laughs) But I I recognize that some people may be fascinated by that, and there is a place uh, to do that, um, because since you've already gone through all that. Um, You studied sculpture? Yes, my first first degree, my first... Uh, incarnation in school was art school yes art school and uh, it's a place that's accepting uh, you can kind of find mm-hmm. your own way and do that sculpture's hard though isn't it it is it's and I did stone so oh, it's literally hard yeah <laughs> <laughs> and like if you mess up you gotta start all over again oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean I think painting's difficult don't get painting me wrong. is difficult I think painting's tough I've talked about it here mm-hmm. in the show I think it's too wide open yeah. But then you come up with sculpture and you're up against literally everything in the world. In three dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> that has a, yeah. a function. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, why do? You, why would you do that? Mm-hmm. But some people are successful at it. And then yeah. you think it's the same with comedy. You come across something and you think, well, I would not have done that. Yep. And I'm glad you did. But for me, it's tough. It was always tough. I did a little mold making up at oh, the Rhode Island yeah. School of Design and continuing education up there. And even yeah. that was uh, difficult because what are you going to make yeah. a mold of? Well, I don't know. Yeah. And so you make take a cup or something and then make it. And a, then you're going to make mm, 50 cups. What are you going to do? <laughs> just go buy and go to Ikea. Yeah. 
FIU? Uh, FIU, yes. Florida. Yes. The home of Rory the panther. Mm-hmm. You had a panther growing up. I did have a panther growing up. That was in Miami or that that's was in, in Columbia? Miami, Miami yeah. What uh, is it about Floridians mm-hmm. that and- compels them to buy exotic <laughs> animals? You know, what is it about Florida? <laughs> I, yes. That's where I'm going to leave that one because, <laughs> yes, they're all over the place, but are we really going to stop on the crazy pets? They've got so much crazier. No, I know it's there. not the only thing that uh, could be addressed <laughs> sure. down there. Yeah. Dangling member of Florida. But I remember reading an article mm-hmm. in The New Yorker, and uh, it described the control of the snakes because a lot of pythons mm-hmm. and things are going on. And the fellow was an animal control expert, and mm-hmm. he pointed out the fact that when people buy the snakes, mm-hmm. they don't really understand that this thing f- has to how feed. How big it will grow, too. Yeah. One, how big it will, and how yeah. it grows is by eating like vermin. Big And rats vermin. and bunnies <laughs> yeah. and like raccoon. Things mm-hmm. you have to go out and, and get. get. Kill them for them. Kill, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Or, or have somebody to do it. You need a guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, they need this protein. Then that will be digested and uh, then released And a couple of days or every week. I hadn't thought of that. The size of a small horse, this guy was pointing out. Oh, no. People are not thinking it through. Yeah. Of what's going to... And then they release it. I drive it out, too. I put it in the back of a pickup and dump it in the swamp. And then it's going to eat an alligator. Yep. The reason I bring that up is because I Googled snakes in Florida, which is a terrible mistake. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not a good idea. I will never... I can't shake the nightmares. Uh, when I lived there, I remember there was at least once a week an alarm about an alligator in somebody's backyard and big pets that were tried to flush down the toilet, all sorts of things. It was crazy. You ever watch that movie, Alligator? No. That's what happened. They flushed the alligator down in a New York apartment. Oh, my God. And it grew in the sewers. I'm going to watch it. And then it, <laughs> then it attacked. Sounds uh, great. I think it's like 1980, 1982, yeah. something like that. One of my favorite movies. Miami's also a strange place. Mm-hmm. You think you're going to be you're just down there, and you, the weirdest thing that'll happen is that you'll be uncomfortable in your swimsuit. Yeah. Uh, because everybody's, you know, whatever they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, but that's, you go out into the neighborhoods, and it's very odd. It's mm-hmm. a very, you go to places like Vizcaya. Yeah. Kind of slowly sinking into mm-hmm. the sea, this weird ruin yep. uh, that's there. Um, do you go back? to Miami a lot? I've only been back once since I moved here in 2008 and I'm okay not going back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've come to enjoy it. Uh, do you go to the art fairs at all? Uh, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Uh, but not to Miami. To no, the, no, to no, Boston. no. I did do, I used to do Basel and stuff when I lived down there but not too much. Not now. Not now. Yeah. And uh, your family's still there? No. Nope. Mother? My mother and my brother both moved to New York. Oh, they followed yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Not with you? No. Okay. Later. <laughs> no, but do they live with you? No, no, no. Okay, no. okay. Uh, now, well, that brings me to my mm-hmm. next question beautifully. How do you get to New York? Oh, well, um, so I came on vacation once um, in like 2007 in my last year of undergrad. And, or like maybe like a year and a half before I finished undergrad. And I loved it so much and was like immediately like I belong here. <laughs> this place is for me that... Um, I went home, and when I applied to grad schools, I only applied to New York grad schools. And you had uh, put the stones aside, yeah. the stone-cutting tools, have been rested, retired. Yes. You had moved more into anthropology. Well, directly. actually, what happened is uh, during my final project for sculpture, um, for you know the final show, uh, I was working on an installation that was about... 
I don't want to say not about symbolism, but really like the history of symbols and how, again, how we incorporate symbols into our life as part of defining who we are, you know, and tattoos and like, I love triangles and stars and hearts, whatever, you know, people just take on these symbols as uh, part of their own identity. So I was working on that and I started doing some research. Like I was just researching into particular symbols that I can't even recall at the time. Uh, now, I mean, and um, I enjoyed the research so much more <laughs> than my project <laughs> that I just, just I thought about it over the summer and I decided that I would much rather learn more about that and understand really more humanity in general than try to express. You know, I think I really had a moment where I realized I'm not an expressive person, which is probably why I'm not a performer. My goal in life is not expression. My goal in life is more is collecting knowledge. Is I like to know about things, be aware, see everything. <laughs> yeah. That seems to so that's what you pursued and you were able to, you got in. Yep. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. And yeah. then uh and then how long do you start book getting the booking? Um I've been working for comedy stuff for the last like 4 or 5 years. Um so it was after grad school. Okay. Um because basically what happened was when I was in grad school, um, I worked full time, you know, all through school. So I had very little time, but I was also aware that I lived in New York City finally and that this is where all the comedians I want to see are. <laughs> so <laughs> long uh, simmering passion yes, as a child. Exactly. And now I would get to see it live all the time. So um, I started really going to all the clubs a lot and going to big shows at theaters and just seeing as much comedy as I could in between my very cramped schedule areas you know and um is this is so silly but i had tickets to go to the or reservations to go to the comedy cellar to see um greg giraldo was on the lineup uh -huh. and he was like my favorite you know he was uh and i mean my favorite in the personal sense not in the objective booker sense <laughs> <laughs> i mean he was my favorite in that um i identified a lot with him he was colombian he was a first generation american he uh was like an overachiever who, you know, he was a lawyer and he left all of his career, which in a Latino, you know, first generation American family is very not okay. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, to pursue this passion of comedy. And in a lot of ways, although I'm not a comedian, I kind of did the same thing because all the opportunity that my mother gave me by having me in this country, I kind of threw it all away by being like, I'm going to be an anthropologist. <laughs> how, how are you going to make money with it? I don't know. I'll figure it out. I just want to know everything. <laughs> yeah. So you go to see that show? No. no you oh, had tickets. No. So I had the reservations and my thesis was due the next day uh -huh. and I was not finished. And so I just decided to do the right thing and I gave the reservations to a friend of mine who took a date and they had a great time. And about a week later, Greg Geraldo died. And so oh. I never saw him live. And it's so creepy and rude to make it about me when you know he has a family who really experienced loss <laughs> but um I took it very much as like oh my goodness I'm I'm they're all gonna die I'm, I have to see them before they die <laughs> like uh, it was so trying to see more comedy. yeah like I really need to see more because I'm gonna miss these opportunities you know and um, I don't think that's that's uh, out of line I think you can yeah. you can claim that I mean it's uh, something a little yeah. sign that said oh maybe yeah. Don't need to be all the way over in this direction. Exactly. That I could live in the moment. Yes, Either definitely. Either way, that's a good lesson to learn from. Definitely. It was, uh, and yeah, exactly. It taught me or made me think about not putting off things that I want to do and, you know, mortality, all that stuff. So um, 
I finished my thesis, I finished school, and then I just, all of a sudden, for the first time in like 11 years, I had free time. <laughs> I had, I got, um, right out of school, I was hired by the 9-11 Museum, um, because as I said, you know, I focused on modern American culture, but um, within that, I specifically focused a lot on the use of memory and, um, oh yeah, the use of memory in building national and personal identity. Uh, especially in tragic history. So yeah, that would fit with the 9-11. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was really interested in it because of my Colombian background and the fact that, you know, from very early on, I could tell that I had a different point of view than my peers as far as like death and violence in the world. It was something that was more commonplace for me uh, uh -huh. and was very just like shocking and unknown to the people in the United States. Like um, even when 9-11 happened and people's reaction to it was so foreign to pretty much the rest of the world because at the same time it was a huge tragic thing that we're all watching. But there was a tinge to the American reaction of how could this possibly happen? Mm -hmm. Whereas the whole rest of the world lives with these things happening on a pretty consistent basis. So it was like this bubble was popped, you know, where it was just suddenly yeah. for a, in for most Americans, the first time in their life, they realized that they are not always safe, that there are people who can come and hurt you or hurt your loved ones or destroy things that you value or, you know. Um, that's, that's a fascinating perspective on mm -hmm. it, too. And, and uh, though I also uh, I think whether we just become more aware of it after mm -hmm. that, if that's a defining... Because I think if you go back to like the great tragedies, mm -hmm. and I love to visit them all. Me too. But if you go back to like, you have the Pearl Harbor, mm -hmm. JFK, 9-11, yeah. the, mm -hmm. big, the big three mm -hmm. of uh, our most recent century. But in fact, the level of violence that happens every single day, is the kind of thing that yeah. you're talking about, mm -hmm. a kind of a background level of violence, mm -hmm. um, Ha is happening yep. and the the whether it's the gun control mm -hmm. issue or what but now we're more aware of it mm -hmm. certainly if you watch well, like, now i'm thinking if you yeah. go back to like to read any fictionalized account yeah. of the past thinking mm -hmm. like deadwood or something mm -hmm. like well you think well gosh that's a pretty violent situation yeah. there. but if you read actual documented histories of mm -hmm. uh, what it was like on the frontier and all that it's an incredible violence is cooked into the yeah and it, it, it becomes part of your um worldview in a different way so it was just something that interested me to kind of understand not just how a nation defines itself because as a colombian that was also that's part of your colombian identity is wherever you go outside of colombia people make these connections and assume you are used to violence and that kind of thing um so my interest came from that. I wrote a lot about that in school, and then the 9-11 Museum hired me right out, right out of school to um, finish building the memorial and to open the museum. And not a lot of comedy there, though. No, not at all. But that's what made me pursue it all the more. I bet. <laughs> yeah, because I bet I would working just at that every day. Get out of work, and you know, like I said, for the first time, I just had free time. All, the only thing I had to do was a nine-to-five job, Monday through Friday. So that meant like a seventy percent increase in my free time. Yes. And I just started going to shows a lot and being around all the time. <laughs> well, and and uh, uh, with. Um all sincerity, mm -hmm. the 9-11 uh, Memorial Museum, the exhibitions mm -hmm. that are there, 
uh, very highly regarded and uh, well thought out, and everyone talks about how sensitive, and that's the kind of thing, you get it wrong. Yeah. That's it. That's And, you know. (laughs) know, It sounds like got it right. So, So great. Yeah. On that. Mm -hmm. Congratulations on on your efforts in in that. Thank you. Now uh, we pivot slightly to uh, you're going, well, we'll Mm -hmm. continue with this, not even a pivot, but (laughs) you're going to see more comedy. You're getting it. You're getting the experience. You start booking it maybe four years Mm -hmm. ago. At some point, you get involved with Just for Laughs. Sure. The big comedy Mm -hmm. festival in Montreal. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was talking about earlier, where you had a series of tweets that were like, this is basically the way that you... Uh, do it, or here's some tips if yeah. you're going to apply to this festival. Not long ago, mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago, I had Mary Houlihan in here. Yeah. Uh, Mary, a uh, young comic in mm-hmm. New York, had just done her second callback for okay. Just for Laughs. Mm-hmm. For characters, uh, right? Uh, I would say characters, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't know exactly, but I think that's mm-hmm. true. I think that's true. Um, uh, and and I realized that you know my audience is mostly you know, uh, dowagers and widowers outside mm-hmm. of Philadelphia. But <laughs> for, for, those of, for those of them that um, uh, might be interested in this kind of thing, uh, maybe we could just talk through a little bit uh, sure. about w- what is it like to uh, be on that side of it where you're evaluating and selecting things, which is what I understand yeah. your role was. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, are they looking for uh, specifically, you know, over 40, you know, guys that are yeah. kind of you know up here doing our best and seeing just yeah. hoping for a better quality of life is that the t- i'm asking yeah. for a friend <laughs> <laughs> sorry excuse me um you know so i think that's one of the things that i was trying to get across with that is that in general i just feel that it's a, a very opaque process for comedians you know they don't really know much more than whatever their friend who's been through it tells them they don't really know why they do or do not get an audition or why the audition was good or not good. They don't really get any feedback. Um, and they don't really get any, there's no um, mission statement for, for JFL new faces. You know what I mean? But if it did have a mission statement, and forgive me, JFL, for speaking on your behalf, but... You, uh, you're no longer affiliated no with No longer them. affiliated. This, you did, uh, you yeah. were a judge or something for a couple of years? I was a talent coordinator, actually, and okay. a scout. So okay. basically, it was my job to help the new faces people um, narrow... Well, watch. I think we watched the last year. I was there, like, 375 clips. Oh, God. Yeah, and I mean three. I'm sorry, 375 live auditions, and then add to that video clips for like the people that couldn't travel to New York or, or LA. So it was just crazy. But um, gosh, yeah. So it was just my my job to help them, you know, give them tips about people they should be checking out, and help them narrow down all the people that they were already looking at. Um, and so those tweets, I was just trying to give them some transparency, like give them, uh, like I mentioned earlier, I got that those questions a lot and I didn't have the time to answer everyone, but I also didn't want to ignore their emails because like I said, I see, I see that it's difficult from your side. Um, so I went ahead and I wrote in there a few tips. And one of the main things that I was trying to get across is that we all kind of have this conception of new faces as being a stand-up contest so that it's about picking the best stand-up comedians and it's not that (laughs) it is very clearly I think although nobody ever states that really 
It's a casting call. It's a casting call in which they are trying to fill specific roles, um, which means particular looks. You know, they're aiming for who's the next person we can put on a red carpet show, the next person that can be on a Chelsea Lately panel type of thing. And they are who? The festival? Um, yeah, the festival. Yeah. Because they are industry. They are industry. And that's another thing. I didn't even talk about this in those tweets, but it's... um. The festival is by industry for industry. So it is very much about them showcasing for each other their own um, clients, right? Look at my fancy client. It's funnier and more famous than your fancy client. Um, and it's also about the festival showcasing people that they think are the people that everyone should be looking at and booking and all of that. So it matters because if they pass some on someone who then makes it big immediately after the festival, then you missed a really big star that you auditioned and you walked away from and right. it's happened, you know? Or conversely, you want everyone or almost everyone that you presented this year to do really, really well next year. So one misconception from comics, I think, is that getting JFL is like getting discovered and then you will just get a bunch of stuff after that. And the reality is that Getting JFL is just like a marker of this person is already <laughs> getting all this stuff. They're on their way to blowing up, as they say. Um, so it's not, they're not trying to find obs obscure unknown gems. They are trying to find the next big thing. It's like you're already on the uh, path to light as yeah. a uh, Boy Scout or whatever. Exactly. Towards your arrow of light. So mm -hmm. it's a merit badge. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I could tell you. They, they wanted, as an example, they wanted to audition at one point for New Faces. Leslie Jones, who is yeah. was already on SNL at the time that they wanted to audition her because they thought maybe she was a New Face in stand-up. But she's on SNL. <laughs> and she's been working for... Yeah, for like ever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 20, 30 years. Exactly. So this is, this is what I'm saying in terms of your original question. Sorry for all the... No, no. The going around, but... It doesn't mean that they will never go for an older person or a comic who has been doing it for 20 years. It mean, And it doesn't mean that they're only going for pretty young girls or whatever. But it does mean that they're looking for people who something is about to happen with them now. They want to be able to say, look, we told you so. And by plucking an unknown person who's like two, three, five years in and saying, we think that this person's going to be the next big thing, that's a much bigger gamble than a person who's already being considered for The Daily Show <laughs> and a person that already yes. writes packets yeah. for Conan and a person, you know. The ascension must have started already. Exactly. It's exactly. not a launch pad. Exactly. Aha. Aha. Well, that's important. Yeah. I'm happy to have that information. <laughs> and uh, uh, would you say that you, I mean, to me, it mm -hmm. seems like even though you work within this, mm -hmm. one of the most celebrated art museums in, mm -hmm. the, in the world, you probably identify more with the comedy, quote unquote, world than the art world. Is that fair? You know, I kind of view them the same because I'm literally viewing them the same way i <laughs> i well that explains it yeah both for me are about um just being exposed to art about being around the people that make it and being around the people that love it um the difference i would say is that museums were something that i chose as a career in terms of like, I didn't, I was like, oh, I'm an anthropologist now and I don't want to be a professor. <laughs> so what can I do? So 
at that point, I decided to go to NYU and do a postgraduate degree in museum studies and museum anthropology um, so that I could work at museums, basically. You like school. Yeah, (laughs) I do. (laughs) I do. Um, And, you know, it was mostly a way of like securing a career. And I really enjoy working in museums because it's the perfect amount of challenging and interesting. And I meet people who are quirky who all it seems like everyone who works in a museum has side projects and interests and you know talents and they're interesting people to be around but um it's great it's a job that ends at the at 6 p.m and then I leave and there's no emergencies and there's no drama there's no problem so that's great and then comedy is I would say more difficult for me because it's not that easy it's something that I think I feel more passionately towards than I do you know, I'm, I don't know, the Guggenheim will always be the Guggenheim. It'll be okay, you know, whether I'm there or not, which is not to say comedy won't, but um, I take it personally when I feel like people who maybe don't deserve particular things get them, or uh, when a person who is very talented gets passed over for something. Like, I take that as a personal failure, even, and a failure of my peers, and so yeah, so I find to, a lot to of to recognize and promote that talent. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I experience despair more often in comedy <laughs> than I do in museums. <laughs> and being kind of a dark person, I guess that means maybe I identify with comedy more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, who do you think are some funny artists? Oh gosh, you mean uh, funny visual artists? <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I don't know. Uh, but funny comedians? Hmm? No, well, I know you know funny <laughs> comedians. I know all those people, too. Yeah, no. Funny artists. Um, it's tough when you get comedy in art. It's the same thing as we were talking yeah. about when you uh, try and document comedy on video. Yeah. There's something about the slower pace mm-hmm. that is required when you're showing in a environment where yeah. there may not be anyone. <laughs> yeah. But when you're doing something for video or in real time... To have that still be funny is very challenging. Very challenging. It's the same if it's it's space and time, which is mm-hmm. why sculpture is so hard. Yeah, exactly. I would say, um, you know, as far as being funny people, obviously I think Warhol seemed hilarious. Um, he but, did okay. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> um, but I would say, actually, uh, I find a lot of correlations between artists, like visual artists or fine artists and, and comedians. And I often take comics with me to museums on little trips yeah. where I like try to tell them stuff about art that I think is helpful to their art. Um, and so I see more correlations in them in terms of artists, of things artists go through and think about and that kind of thing. Uh, I never really paid attention to whether uh, a fine artist was funny or not. I don't think about that one more. Uh, but like, for example, um, <clears throat> um, one of my favorite painters is de Kooning. Yeah. Right. And uh, I'm sure you know that uh, de Kooning was kind of known for never finishing his paintings. Like he would keep them around his studio and he would work on multiple at a time. And he would, you know, one would be considered finished, but if he was just like holding a blue, it was like, you know what, that one needs some blue. And then he would go back to a painting from three years ago and add some blue on that one. And uh, I think it was joked that he considered none of his paintings to be done until they were sold. Because once I sell it, it's not mine and I can't keep working on it. Um, and to me, that's very similar to the way comics see jokes. Yeah. In that it's like something that it's never, it's, 
for for most of the time that they're doing it, it's not finished. They still want to tweak it, change the word, change the order, change the thing I put before that. You know, um, said only do it in this kind of room, that kind of thing. So they're working it out, and then when they sell it, i.e., put it on TV, <laughs> once the special yeah, comes out, yeah, then it's burnt, and they yeah. can't use that anymore, and they can't keep working on it. Um, or even if they don't sell it, but they get to that finished point where I now feel like this is a done joke they immediately become bored with performing it. They immediately are like, well, I don't care about this anymore. There's nowhere left to go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I like telling them about artists like this. They give them, you know, another example of how that that's a normal process in art. Um, I took them once, I took some once to, oh, so at the Met, they had that Cubism exhibit recently or maybe like six months ago. Yeah. And I took them to see, because they were exhibiting the uh, one of Picasso... And Leger, I want to say. Uh -huh. And they were like almost exactly the same, the two paintings, painted both in 1906, I believe, uh, when the men lived blocks apart from each other in Paris and spent common times and common circles all the time and unknowingly painted almost exactly the same painting. And it's like <laughs> a cubist abstract thing. So it's not even like you could be like, oh, they were looking at the same park. <laughs> no, it's like a same color the theme, you know, same feel, almost exact same canvas size. And I showed it to comics, you know, with this idea of um, parallel thinking, right? And it's something that happens in comedy a lot with um, oh, I wrote a joke like that before you or somebody, you know, yes. yeah, that kind of thing. So it's very interesting to have them make that connection with um, other art forms and to kind of step away from their own ego and their own process to realize that it's not always that somebody's stealing from you. And it's not always about who did it first. It's there's something important in the fact that multiple people are thinking about this in the same way. Right. So it's something to keep exploring and keep you know, trying to find a way to make it yours, I think. Well, I love that. I love mm -hmm. uh, the idea of going to, to see to see yeah. work and to draw those connections between mm -hmm. art and comedy, um, yeah. two things that are of interest to me, obviously. And uh, th that's th I'd like to do that with you sometime. Oh, sure. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah. And you were involved in the redesign of the website. At the Guggenheim, at yes. At the Guggenheim, mm -hmm. so great job. Thank you. It looks good. Navigation strong. Thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you know what I like? Mm -hmm. I was there uh, I don't know, a few years ago and was in, downstairs in the theater. Mm -hmm. in the, I don't yeah. feel like a lot of people go down there. I know. That's one of the What museum, a gem. One of museums' problems in general, of all museums, is uh, it's... They're in a, it's difficult for them to reach audiences, I think. They, yeah. they still are working out a way to get beyond their typical audience group and to better inform their audiences of the, all the programming that they have. Um, and the Guggenheim does have very rich exhibition-related programming. Almost every day there's sure. performances and tours. Um, so that theater is like, it's weird to get to, you know? It's uh, very hidden because it's underground, kind of. Uh, but it's so nice, right? That's where we have our staff meetings every month, every yeah, quarter. Well, yeah. we should have like a comedy event in yeah. there. Oh, I never thought of that. But yeah, maybe. Yeah. yeah, some kind of a, a cosmic happening down yeah. there, I think would be good beneath the spiral. Well, uh, I, I've enjoyed talking with you. Thank Louisa. you so much. This, this has is been great. fantastic. And uh, when, when, if people wanted to go see uh, some of the stuff you're putting together, um, the next thing will be uh, we are filming Sticker Treat. For CISO and Sticker Treat is this is the ninth year that we are doing it. It is 
and oh, yes. annual Halloween it. show. You should come. I think you yeah. will love it. Um, in which comedians, um, you know, New York comedians uh, perform as a comedy legend of their choice. Oh, yes, yes. Um, so we will be recording um, a version of the show for CISO on June 27th at Knitting Factory. It's going to be free because we just want to have a great audience of comedy lovers. Great. Um, and that episode is going to air on CISO the week of Halloween, which will be also the week that we do the real regular show. Um, so follow me on Twitter to find out about that show and any others that might be coming up. That's terrific. And your Twitter handle is? Luisa Diaz Nuts. There you go. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, Luisa, thank you so much. Thank you. It's great meeting you. Yeah. Great to meet you. Oh, now, wasn't that something? Uh, my thanks to Louisa for coming in, and you get some actual insight into how everything works. And had I had some of this information earlier, wouldn't that have been helpful? Would I still be here talking with you? I don't know. Probably. I'd like to think so. I would like to think so. And plus, I enjoy this perspective. You kind of back up, and you have a, a, a macro view of everything. And uh, I love thinking about how ways that we are either caught in history or that we shape history, that we are able to affect it or we are just affected by it. Fascinating stuff. I had a wonderful time, and uh, I, I appreciate you tuning in. That's all for us. Till next time, I am happy to be showing and fingers crossed, shelling some of my abstract paintings of empty whiskey bottles, which I will be placing in an artful array over on my neighbor's stoop. They have a stoop because they can afford a house. Now let's get back to that great music that we all enjoy. Dale Radio is written and performed by James Bewley, musical director Steve O'Reilly. Season theme composed and performed by Shockwave. Podcast icon for season eight designed by Jenny Fine. Listen to Dale on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And follow the program on Twitter at Dale Radio or on Instagram at Dale Seaver. If you'd like Dale to come to your local VFW or Elks Lodge, simply drop us a line at Dale Radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You're the best. <laughs> <laughs>